Hey, everybody, what is up? We are here. My name is Garrett Sussman from IPO Rank for Rankable Live. It's our podcast and uh, excited. I, I got a, 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 this dude, this dude who, who dresses well and eats good. Uh, his name is Ram Fishkin. He is the co-founder and CEO of Sparktura, which is this really badass, cool, like market research software that well, we're going to dive into everything audience research and what the tool does, but also just kind of Rand's perspective on it. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Rand. Yeah, thrilled to be here, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You, you've done some other stuff. Uh, you, you were the founder of Moz. You wrote a book. But today, I really want to talk to you about men's fashion. Oh, um, all right. Yeah. Now, you so you, so you told me before you were talking about how... Uh, one of your your personal interests is men's fashion, although you kind of you got beef with the fact that guys don't really shop together these days. It's a, it's, it's a sad thing to me. I uh, I found that one of my love languages apparently taking my guy friends out and uh, you know buying some fun clothes together. I I think look this is a this is a thing that I think we all agree many uh, adult women bond over this experience. And I think men should get to do it too. I, it's kind of fun. It's a great way to like spend a little bit of time together and chat about whatever's on your mind and um, have a sort of active walking experiential thing going on. It's fun, you know. Yeah, I no. especially like doing it in not the United States. I find, uh, <laughs> I find I that U.S. yeah U.S. men's clothing like it, it's just the U.S. is dominated by chains. Because we sort of have this weird economic system that, you know, uh, prioritize a few people at the top. But if you go to, you know, Europe or South America or uh, Japan or something, you can have just a lot more fun doing it. Well, I mean, you you obviously seem like a classy guy. You appreciate fashion. But, you know, I it's funny. I was reading an article the other day how, like, malls are not a thing anymore. I bet you have some strong opinions about malls and mall culture. Ooh, I don't know. I don't like to yuck anybody else's yum. So if you love malls and you miss them and you think they were the best thing ever, great. I'm I'm sad. I, I think there's a few malls that still exist and hopefully you can go to them and have fun. Um, I never had a particularly strong attachment to malls myself. Uh, my parents would take us to the, the mall near, you know, that was closest to our house, which was still like an hour away. Um, growing up because we were in we were in very rural part of King County, mm. uh, Seattle area, and I didn't totally love it. I don't know. Kind of wish. Yeah, we could no, go I, 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 I know you don't you you don't yuck yums, yeah. but I I think it's like culturally, it's just fascinating that that like you know they were built these kind of you know economic centers, and you know I know personally like. I, I had a bad association with malls because I never wanted to be there with my mother because I, mm. I, you know, I had a very like opinionated, strong Jewish mother who was like, oh, you know, let's go to the Gap and you'll look great in, in these clothes. And, and that was like my kind of worst nightmare. So, yeah, I think um, I think the mall as a bonding experience for like teenagers and kids <laughs> and like people who, you know, got together there with their friends. I think that was a very different experience than those of us who kind of went exclusively with family to go shopping. Like that was another uh, layer on top of that. I would say what I don't love about malls um, in general is I, you know, I'm a very, I'm 
quite passionate about underdogs over kind of big players in any space and and mall culture and the, the concept of a mall in the United States is very much around you can go to any mall and find the same 25 chains um, and so that it sort of homogenized the United States uh, it built this culture of sameness which I I also don't love you know I'm someone who loves diversity in all things. I love it in fashion. I love it in food. I love it in travel. I, I love it in people. I love it in company culture. And so I, you know, the, the homogenization and sameness really turned me off. I, I don't think I could have framed why that was, you know, as a kid, but um, certainly that's not something that appeals to me now. I, you know, I love going to other countries and experiencing this sort of idea that you know, every block, every, every strip mall, you know, in whatever Italy or Germany is different because it's all different businesses. It's not the same companies operating the same things. You find, you know, brands you'll never see anywhere else. I mean, I, I'd never heard of the company that makes this sweater before and walked into a shop in Brescia, which is in uh, uh, Northern Italy and was like, that's beautiful. I'm going to get that. And I don't know, it's like 60 bucks. Can't be beat. Wow, I, yeah. I I'm with you on that because it's like the, I I'm I'm similar in the respect of like I think there's something special about a unique experience, about having something that nobody else out there can really experience the same way. Like that's what I love about music right now. Like sometimes yes. I feel overwhelmed with Spotify, but like I love discovering bands that no one's ever heard of, yeah. and I'm like, they're my band. That's my music. I, I think this is a beautiful thing in just all aspects of life, right? The the uniqueness. I think this is um, sort of one of the one of the tragedies of kind of capitalism's evolution is that it rewards big brands, big companies, scale, um, ability to dominate through monopoly power and pricing power and and and, and um, you know economic levers. And what I love about capitalism, right, and what I think the initial promise of of kind of a, um, you know, a liberal capitalist society is, is that lots and lots of people can do what they want to do. If you want to specialize in, you know, making uh, soft men's sweaters in northern Italy and that's like your thing, great, you go do it. And if what you want to do is, um, you know, make uh, chemical processes for refining cardboard. Awesome. Like that's open to you. And if you want like, whatever weird, unique thing you want to do, it's possible as long as there's market demand for you to invest in that. I think that's a, um, a beautiful principle. And what I dislike about capitalism, you know, especially the, the last sort of 50 years of it has been this like concentration of wealth and power, sameness, um, you know, monopoly power. I think, uh, that, is something I hope, right? I hope that that like maybe politically at, at you know a bigger scale and and personally at a smaller scale, we can make a difference and start to change that uh, conundrum situation. And the thing is, I, I think it actually segues perfectly into a conversation around Sparkturo because there is in the same context for each of these individual unique brands, so much content out there, right? And you are a big advocate around this idea of the amplifier 
who actually has built community and there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's, you know, video shows out there. What, what does that, so translate that kind of unique experience to what the modern marketer should think about when they're trying to find their audience. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this, this world of sources of influence, right? Uh, communities, content creators, publications, people that groups of people pay attention to is one in which that kind of, you know, classic model of high variability, incredible uniqueness is still true, right? It's much more like um, the long tail than it is, you know, the, the sort of fat head, uh, you know, monopoly owned and controlled. Uh, unlike 50 years ago when, you know, most Americans read maybe two or three local newspaper publications and maybe the New York Times, the Washington Post, and maybe they watch CBS News. Now there are 10,000 sources, you know, that that people have listened to over the course of a few years. And I think that's actually kind of exciting. I love that diversity of content, of um, of, of influential people in publications. The challenge as a marketer is that we don't get to be, you know, sort of Don Draper, Mad Men era, like, okay, how do I make an advertisement and put it on one of the five channels that I know my audience pays attention to? Because every audience pays attention to those channels. Our challenge today is different. We, we have two choices, essentially, right? We can take all our, you know, dollars and, and you know, uh, currency and whatever it is, Garrett, right? And we can throw it at Google and Facebook and tell them to sort out the targeting. That's option A. And trust them to do and it. Trust <laughs> Always a good idea to trust Google and Facebook. They've never let us down before. No. Um, and B, right? B Option B is instead you go and find the sources of influence that reach your specific audience and the audiences that you're trying to get to pay attention to your content or your product or the problem you're trying to solve or you know whatever it is, the, the, the movement that you're trying to create. And you go market to them through all of those communities and sources of influence in ways that are going to resonate. I, I think that most marketers will agree that while option B is more difficult, it tends to have higher ROI, but it's more challenging to measure. And it's more challenging to get clients and teams to invest in because Google and Facebook have, of course, you know, locked people into this idea that they their marketing should be measurable, especially digital marketing. And unfortunately, you, you've got to take a uh, more challenging, more nuanced view of measurability when you when you expand outside of those two. So th this this is something that you know obviously I want to help people with that Spark Toro tries to help people with, um, but it's it's an uphill battle. Yeah, and and it's one thing that's really interesting to me. So a lot of our audience, and we'll get to kind of like the the enterprise aspect of audience research, but you have these different sized businesses and they all want a piece of the pie. How do you scale? So like when you're doing your marketing research and you're trying to identify your sources of influence, how do you decide the size of the amplifier to go after? Like if you're a small, you know, little, little mom and pop, I mean, sure. It'd be great to get on like a CBS, you know, national show, but maybe, Maybe I know it's. Maybe. I I saw you did a video about like TikTok and just getting out there and being like, that's not where our audience is. How how do you decide 
who to go after in the first place to pay on your business side. Does it matter? Yeah. So I, I think about this from the perspective of, uh, I guess it's really three things. It's number one, does this source of influence reach a, um, significant percent of people who are likely to care about what I'm doing, what I'm messaging to them, what I'm telling them. Right. Um, you know, if it, whatever it is, if it's CBS news or if it's the wall street journal or something, right. And I, I pitch the wall street journal about, Hey, you should write about spark Toro and how we do audience research. Well, they might cover us. Right. I, um, I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of contacts in the wall street journal. They've, they've written about, you know, lost and founder before. And some of my, my, my work with, um, you know, the Google zero click problem. So let's say I did manage to get a piece into the Wall Street Journal that was about audience research and featured SparkToro and maybe talked about, you know, the sector and this upcoming idea of, of doing market research through passive, you know, social and web research. That could be cool. You know, it might be something to point to. I could, I, I could show my grandfather and be like, Papa, look, we were in the Wall Street Journal. Is it going to reach a high percent or, or even a tiny percent of marketers in the digital field who are likely to be good customers for SparkToro? No, I don't think so. Right. I, I mean, this is, I, I'm not blowing smoke here. Like it's probably more valuable for me to be on this podcast. Oh, well, Rand. No, but no, it's precision. It's precision. Precision. Like who, it is, it is targeting exactly the audience that you want to reach with the right message at the right time in the right way through the source of influence that they actually pay attention to and not just going after vanity metrics like, well, this is a brand name that people have heard of and this is a publication that is national and this is, you know, well, lots of people read the Wall Street Journal and it would be expensive to buy advertising there. That, that's not what an entrepreneur should care about, right? Right now, look, I, I'm not telling you that if you're doing PR, your clients don't ask you to get in the Wall Street Journal. They do, and they'll probably reward you for that. But the the business result, the outcome of number of people who are likely to be good customers for your product, that is much smaller. So that that's the first thing that I think about is precision targeting. So the second I mean, thing- Yeah, keep okay. going. No, I was going to say the second thing for me is really, do I have a shot at it, mm. right? Is it is it possible? Do I have some pitch that is likely to be successful that's going to get me onto that podcast, featured on that person's YouTube channel, talked about by that publication, sent out in that email newsletter, featured on that blog, whatever it is. And then the third one, um, the third one for me is about the message itself and uh, the... I would say it's it's the combination of this person publication and the message that I'm talking about makes sense together in a natural fit kind of way. Because I think I think when it's unnatural, it's very easy to tell, right? So if you, you know, if Garrett, you invited me on here and we spent the whole time talking about um, I don't know, men's fashion and I promoted some online men's clothing store it's awkward, right? It just, it doesn't quite make sense. Like, like rankable is not really about that. And, and sure we tease the topic of men's fashion and it's, it's fun and engaging and sort of funny and, you know, like has some of those hook aspects, but it's, it's not what we, what our audience expects us to talk about. 
And so the fit is awkward, even if the other two things might be working. So those, those are the three that matter to me. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I think a lot of marketers want to be looking for, whether their clients or their teams or their CMOs are always buying in. Right. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. It's, I feel like market research in general is, it goes through this kind of fluctuation of value in different organizations. And, and you even say like right on the homepage of Sparkturo, it's like, you know, Sparkturo is trying to give tools that the big guys, big girls, whoever uses that we're not used to using. Like, so you, you do think that market research is important. Like when does that get started? Like if someone's never done research or, or, you know, really Mm -hmm. thought about it, like how, how do you start with it or how do you restart with it? Yeah, I, I need to publish a blog post about this. I'm, I've been meaning to for a long time. So there's this concept in behavioral psychology called an influence map. And essentially, you know, beha- behavioral psychologists will, will take a particular field and they'll say, for example, what, um, what is the influence map of how people think about, um, uh, you know, vaccine information and, and preventing the spread of disease and whether they should get you know, an, an MMR shot for their kids and, you know, whether they should get a COVID vaccine and get their booster shot and all this kind of stuff. And of course, there's a, a big public health impact, right? And you have the potential to kill millions of people or save millions of lives and, you know, very, very impactful kind of thing, right? And so a behavioral psychologist will build an influence map of, okay, you know, people listen to, um, you know, sort of these these health resources and they visit these websites and they search on Google and they watch these YouTube channels and these are all things that impact them. Garrett, I'm going to do a thing. There is a leaf blowing gentleman outside of my office. Um, and so I'm going to switch to some headphones. Give me just a second. All good. No, it's, it's interesting when you talk about that too, because it's like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind specifically with COVID was how during, um, you know, at one point they had, I forget, who it was that that came on but like some maybe ariana grande or no it was a uh, uh livia someone they brought someone up on like one of the press conferences and you know obviously they're trying to get this message out to to like a different type of audience and i'm thinking to myself well if like it goes back to your your weird awkward fit but at least they were trying to influence with the people that they thought their target audience would be interested by uh, right so so the you're right. And this concept of an influence map is essentially where you attempt to theorize and visualize and experiment with where you believe your audience pays attention and, and the sources that influence them. And that can be a lot of things, right? It can be, you know, they go to their doctor's office. This is um, one of the reasons I think that uh, Spain for example, had so much success in getting people vaccinated, right? Because there's an extremely high uh, amount of trust between family doctors and um, and individual patients. Uh, there's, you know, their healthcare system kind of prioritizes this, this, as we would imagine in the United States, like a very classic Americana, you know, old school, you go see your, you know, family physician. And that, that person is like someone you know, like, and trust and have known for decades. And so, so when they tell you, hey, you should get a vaccine shot, hey, you should get a second shot, hey, you should get a booster shot, people just listen, right? And so, you know, they, they got up to whatever their 88, 90%, you know, vaccination rates. And, and of course, as a result, had a lot of success with the disease, right? And, and so these are 
um, you can do this for anything, right? You can say essentially, hey, I want to influence folks in the you know, chemical engineering world to be aware of a new process for, um, I don't know, you know, reducing the environmental impact of plastics production. And in order to do that, it's these conferences, right, that are that are very impactful. It's this, um, uh, you know, chemical engineering um, trade organization, I think it's like KCH2M or something like that, uh, that's, that's like very well known in the field and, and nearly every chemical engineer follows it and pays attention right so if, if you can get them to talk about this process and promote it like that that's a great place oh and there's a lot of you know the field managers um in, impact a bunch of the you know line work that chemical engineers are doing at the drafting tables and, and boards uh, okay right now now we have our influence map of where we think this audience receives information, how they process it, how they determine what's trustworthy and not. Let's go experiment with marketing through these places where, where we think, you know, we can do the three things, reach the right audience with the right message um, and, and actually get our pitch accepted. Yeah, that no, it, it makes sense, especially because, you know, you, you have limited time, you have limited resources, no matter how big an organization you are, like there's always, we know, there's always limitations on how much budget you can spend and how much time you can spend. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I wanna ask before we actually pivot over to entrepreneur or onto um, enterprises, cause I'm just curious in this direction that we're going. I know you recently like tweeted about um, crypto and there's a lot of talk about, there is a lot of talk about web three and community hmm. though, and like dark social and dark web. I'm curious to like how bullish you are on those in terms of the idea of audience research and putting the message in those types of places where as a marketer, you might have less control, um, but they're really important conversations happening like in these built communities. Sure. So, you know, if you imagine, oh, there's a whatever, a private discord or a lot of this is happening in, you know, private back channel on WhatsApp or, um, you know, it's um, messages between people, um, you know, in the old school world. Oh, uh, it is people on bulletin board systems in 1991, right? That that yeah. kind of stuff, C completely unobservable. And in those cases, I, I think the reality is that the marketer's job is to pay attention to communities like that, to interview and talk to and have relationships with people who are using those channels, but not to be going, you know, privately into those things and like posing as someone <laughs> who fits in the community and then like trying to promote the product. That that stuff never works. Um, what does work really well is having those conversations and from those conversations being informed about why people um, talk positively about your product, service, solution, uh, bring up your problem, uh, how they frame it, how, what kinds of conversations happen that make them um, have those private chats around it, and then talking to your product team a lot of the time and having the product bake in some of the marketing lessons you've learned from the audience. I love that. It makes sense. Like tapping into the insight without being like inauthentic, right? Like yeah. forcing yourself into someone else's ecosystem and, and, and disrupting I, it. Yeah. I mean, look what, you know, when you talk about like, um, these private conversations, um, 
I mean, Web3 is a little funny. because Even I, Reddit feels like that. Yeah, yeah. Way. Well, so Reddit is a very public place, right, where you can where you can do a lot more of the more active kinds of marketing if, if you want to. Um, but it's also a place where I would advise, generally speaking, you want to go more hands-off, more listen and change kind of product and marketing and positioning and conversation direction in other places rather than jumping in and being like, that's not true. We deliver a high degree of you know quality in our product. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that, right? Um, so I, you know, my, my thinking along that front is you don't, um, you don't directly participate. You learn and then you change your product positioning, content messaging in other places, right? On your website, when you talk publicly about it, perhaps in the very product itself, you're making changes. That, that's kind of how you do marketing that reaches those one-to-one sources. I love that. And, and, and that, that's a whole other, I mean, with you, when you're talking to you, yeah, we can, we could go down so many different rabbit holes. It's always tempting, but I do want to bring it back to the idea of the enterprise, which I think is a different type of animal when it comes to market research. Like they do have the tools, but marketing is changing. And I'm curious how you look at, like, if you were working in an enterprise doing market research, how's that different from you know, a mom and pop or even, even just any small business. Sure. I mean, so the reality with enterprises, especially when it comes to marketing through individual sources of influence, especially um, smaller channels, you know, a, a podcast, a YouTube channel, uh, a publication, an email newsletter, a conference, whatever it is, unless it's enterprise B2B, meaning, you know, very small number of clients that they're trying to reach you know, hundreds or thousands, right? Um, the reality is that these channels are not going to be needle moving for them, right? right? If you are whatever Procter and Gamble getting on a podcast to promote Colgate, it's, it's, it's not that it's impossible, but it's not, um, you know, if you're Tom's of Maine, right? Toothpaste, especially maybe 15 years ago when they were starting up. Yeah, podcast marketing was probably pretty darn smart, right? Made a lot of sense. You're a challenger brand. You're a startup. You have a story to tell. You're trying to like get some of the early adopters to come on board with you. That makes sense. If you're a dominant brand in a space, you're, you're Coca-Cola. Yeah, you probably want to throw money at the Super Bowl and Google and Facebook. I, I was going to say, is it is it at that point? Is it all about creative and messaging? Like, is it all about brand when you're when you're at the enterprise level in terms of market research? <sighs> No, not not entirely, right? There, I mean, um, you know, great example was there, there was this viral story that I think uh, the Washington Post wrote about, um, where Chase Bank, right, had been running ads on four hundred thousand websites through through I think the Google Display Network, and they cut that down. They basically like axed everything except for I think four thousand websites, right? So they cut it by ninety percent. And what happened? Same results. Right, same number of conversions, same number of clicks, same amount of traffic, uh, same you know brand efficacy, same ROI. What? So what's going on there? Well, there's a lot of shit in the ad <laughs> network yeah. world, right? And so when you know when you're at the enterprise size, I think I think your job is not just throw money at 
these big providers and let them sort out the targeting, you also need to do a lot of auditing. You've got to do a lot of manual investigation. You have to do experimentation. You've got to do incrementality testing. It's a very different type of game, right? I, I wrote about this recently in the blog post. Um, you know, what if performance advertising is just an analytics scam? Yep. Oh, I love that. And, and you know, my contention there is that I think a very high percent of what Google and Facebook take credit for and other ad networks take credit for are conversions that would have happened anyway. And, and so if you're at the enterprise size, you are probably getting a lot of misinformation about what's yielding true incremental increase in your customer acquisition um, and sales. And you should do some testing around that. It, it is really interesting. I remember a similar um, art article around like Airbnb had a similar experience with mm -hmm, moving mm -hmm. their advertising. But I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting with attribution when you go there because it's like attribution is just, the reality is it's just hard, right? It's just hard to do. And it takes a lot of sophisticated statistical analysis um, and analytics to be able to a properly attribute whatever the touch phrases are. I, I saw on Twitter recently, there's that whole argument of like, you know, you see that statistic floating around of like, it takes seven brand touches before someone is willing to be a customer. And that is provenly outdated and might not ever have actually been accurate. That's right. That's right. So it's yeah. like, how do you approach that? Yeah. Um, I think there's, you have two options, right? You can spend tens of millions of dollars in terms of, you know, people and technology and resources um, to attempt to get very close to real attribution, right? And and real incrementality, um, but you will need uh, an absolutely massive team, incredible budget, phenomenal technology, uh, and even then, you'll probably be inaccurate. And you know, every month you'll be improving and you'll realize, you know, 12 months into a $20 million budget to, I talked to someone recently who um, is director of marketing for an e-commerce brand, very big e-commerce brand. Um, and she was, she was like, oh yeah, no, we're investing, you know, just tens of millions of dollars in, in incrementality and attribution and trying to determine, you know, where we should really put this budget because it's so meaningful to our um, investments long-term and our growth and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and she was like, every, you know, every year we make so many improvements that we realize the model we had the previous year was completely wrong. Like just, you know, completely misleading and we learn a whole ton of new stuff. And let me tell you, friends, I mean, if brands like this are doing it and, and finding that, um, and this is a very impressive person, right? So I, I, I'm just saying, I think you can throw a lot of resources at that and not solve the problem. And so it might not be the end of the world. It might not be the end of the world to do some gambling and some experimentation and some, hey, we're going to act like marketers did from, you know, 1900 to 2005 and basically uh, invest in channels and tactics that target the right kinds of people that appear to produce results for us. And we're not going to worry about perfect attribution. I, and you I, might I, save, you might save a hell of a lot of pain and energy and 
if if you don't worry so much about proving it to yourself. It's so it's so much kick yourself when you when you realize some of that stuff too, and it does work. And you know, it's funny. We we could obviously like keep going, and and we didn't even get to really. Um, the fact that we're in like a paradigm shift just between the pandemic and how people consume and buy and, you know, that might shift us completely with remote working and, you know, the market research there. So we'll, we'll have to have you on for another podcast at some point, but I do want to ask you before we go. Uh, and, and I realize this potentially could get political, but feel free is like, we talked about Facebook and Google advertising and that being like something that people are just wasting their money on. Do you think that's going to change? Like, if you looked into your crystal ball, like, do you think what would it take for us to get to a point where the whole advertising marketing world isn't so dependent on these two ad bohemists? Um, uh, in the short term, I think the only likely uh, thing that would change that is significant antitrust activity. Um, yeah. And that's possible, right? I mean, um, one of the rare things that, you know, both political parties in the United States generally agree on is that they, they don't like the power held by Google and Facebook, and they want to um, make some significant investments there. I think that, you know, the Trump administration obviously started a bunch of uh, investigations, and they, they kind of petered out because they tried to wrap it all up before the election, whatever. But, um, the, you know, the Biden administration is doing the same thing. Congress is doing the same thing. A bunch of states attorneys general are doing the same thing. Yeah, you, you probably will see some action and w whatever that action is will have, that'll determine whether there's real impact and real change in terms of the, the marketplace, right? But like in my dream scenario, I imagine that Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp are three different companies. Mm -hmm. I imagine that Google, YouTube, and Google Maps are three different companies. And then I think you create a ton more um, opportunity for innovation and incentive for innovation and competition, which leads to more new companies and more diversity of channels and more diversity of opportunities and probably a lot more good things in that space. Um, I know there's skeptics who are like, no, breakups never work. I, I fundamentally disagree. I think history disagrees. Um, you know, when I look at the Microsoft antitrust action from the 90s, which wasn't even a breakup, right? It was just a restriction on what Microsoft could and couldn't do. Uh, I think that paved the way for an open internet. I think otherwise we'd be living in an era where Microsoft owned search, social, video, everything, right? Like you you couldn't use a Google Chrome browser on your Windows desktop. It would, yeah. that's just... I was going to say, thank goodness that be. Google's like not actually good at social and Google's not actually good at e-commerce, you know, like otherwise they would, you know, Amazon and, and Facebook and all those probably wouldn't be Google Plus. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think, um, I think that's in the short term, the, the only real thing I don't, I don't see, you know, individual advertisers being like, I'm going to reject Google and Facebook. It's just not that, that, that doesn't make a, a difference. Right. That's like. Um, if Cambridge Analytica didn't like di like divert enough people from buying Facebook ads, then it's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm with you, Rand. Thank you so much. Um, like I said, I could I could talk to you forever about this stuff. It, it is it is always a pleasure. Um, you know what what do you what are you cooking? What are you cooking for the holidays before we go? Uh, well, so my wife and I are going down to San Diego where her family is. Um, so we, we will not be cooking for a few days, uh, but um, 
that when we get back, I think we. Uh, uh, sorry. Is that going to be difficult for you? No, it should be. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll you know we'll put on masks and we're getting our booster shots on Saturday, so oh, nice. we'll, we'll try and be you know as, as safe as we can possibly be. And um, nice thing about Southern California, even in November, you can dine outside. Nice. So we will be. Uh, yeah, very safe. And then uh, when we come back, I think we're going to try and do a little Friendsgiving thing um, for some people close to us in our world. And I think I am making the cranberry sauce and the stuffing. So Ooh. I like I like the Grand Marnier with the uh, with the shaved orange rind on it. I think that's that's the cranberry sauce for me. Yeah, it's better. and 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 me, my wife and I were probably going to do stovetop. No, I mean, no, we we do some nice things, but I mean, I was going to ask you about an air fryer, but that's a whole other thing. Thank you so much. I could ramble on. It's a pleasure, man. Um, be in touch. Always a friend of IPOL rank. Uh, Ram Fishkin, everyone. We will catch you later. My name is Garrett Sussman from IPOL rank. How how do they find you online? Oh, uh, I'm most active on Twitter, where I'm at Ranfish. But of course, you can go to Spark Toro and. Sign up for a free account if you want to try it out. Um, Garrett, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate uh, you and the Rankable team connecting with me. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great holiday. And y'all, check out Spark Tarot. It's, it's so good. It's so good. Okay. <laughs> See y'all later. Peace. <laughs>